My name is Sean Murphy. I'm a professor of international law at George Washington University, and I'm here with uh, Judge Thomas Bergenthal. This is part two of our interview about the life and career of Judge Bergenthal. Um, Judge, let me turn now to the uh, Human Rights Committee. You, you served as a member of the committee from 1995 to 1999, and um, that, of course, is the committee associated with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, do you think that the system of expert treaty bodies um, is a useful one in the field of international human rights? Are they serving an important function? Oh, definitely. Uh, one, one has to, however, keep certain things in mind about a committee like this or the other committees that exist, uh, the UN committees. They are supposed to be expert committees, and the members are supposed to be serving in their individual capacities, mm -hmm. which is critical. And uh, however, there are some members there that are government appointed um, and uh, are not really independent, and that affects the work. Um, I, I found on the Human Rights Committee that that was not all that serious a problem. Hmm. Uh, I, I thought, on the whole, uh, the committee, which actually had sort of pioneered uh, these committees and pioneered the methodology of the committee, uh, was had a group of committed uh, individuals, um, and and did a I thought a very good job because it was it's an important because it re requires countries to come before it, at least in, in my day, and answer questions about what they are doing in the human rights field, mm -hmm. which means that it makes countries, even the worst violators of human rights, um, think about what they are doing and how it's going to affect their standing. Everybody is proud of their standing of their country. What are other countries in the UN going to think about them mm -hmm. when all of this stuff comes out. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, that has an impact. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that you can't just say, I'm going to go there, I'm going to lie a lot, and nothing is going to... You have to think about it. You're going before the UN, and even though you don't think much about them, you want to appear. It's like w wanting to be clean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you wash before you go there. It, it, it's, it's sort of... I think forces governments to reflect on human rights. Not necessarily that they're going to, if you have a dictatorship, it's not going to change necessarily, but it'll affect how they proceed. And I do think in some countries it can have a significant effect, in another minimal, mm -hmm. uh, but it plays, it performs a, a useful role. And what happened also during the time when I was, there was a transition which allowed NGOs uh, to to contribute, to uh, inform us about what was happening in these countries as a sort of contraposition to what the government was saying. Mm -hmm. The NGOs would say, they are telling you that this isn't happening, but that's not true. And so, and the governments knew that the NGOs would come, so they had to be prepared. So it, it, it creates a sort of a, a movement that favors improvement of human rights. You would think particularly a treaty that's not um, associated with reciprocity, like a trade agreement, exactly. is one that if it's just a human rights treaty without a monitoring mechanism, uh, you're left in a situation where states may easily ratify it and then basically forget about it. Exactly. Uh, whereas this allows for a, a constant monitoring. And um, publicity. And publicity, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's important. Mm -hmm. What is interesting, what I found, is that uh, newly democratic governments, or they think they're democratic, but put it in quotation marks, resist being told mm. what to do because they think, you know, we know all about it. And you find uh, oppressive governments are often much more concerned about what they're doing. Hmm. Not necessarily improving the situation, but they want to appear. Hmm. And they, so uh, the committee, once it developed this work with the NGOs uh, and 
it, members of the committee being able to ask questions, uh, created an atmosphere that I think many countries probably would not have, would have preferred not to go to Geneva or to New York mm -hmm. and report and face some of these questions that they had to answer. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very useful, I think. So we have now about 10 of these treaty body committees, and arguably that's uh, pushing to the limit the ability of marshalling resources to sustain uh, all of them. Uh, there's also some overlap uh, between them in terms of their mandates, uh, which has led, I think, to some calls for finding a way of integrating them, perhaps developing a single body that would have uh, cross-cutting responsibilities. That's problematic because these are yeah. different treaty regimes with different state parties to it. But do you have any reflections on where we might want to be going in the future to, uh, to deal with that issue? Well, I, I, first of all, it is a problem, mm -hmm. clearly. Um, I, I thought that when I was there that it, it would have, it would be, one could require countries to prepare only one report mm. uh, for the different, especially on certain subjects, because discrimination, for example, is a topic in most of the treaties. So you, you could create, you could have a report that focuses, say, on discrimination, racial discrimination, religious discrimination. Uh, and have hearings that way. Mm -hmm. and, and the country will only have to prepare one report so often. Mm -hmm. That's one possibility. Um, there is another thing that, is a, that uh, could help. I, I found, you know, we often think of the NGOs doing a magnificent job and so forth. Uh, the problem, they have their own problem. And the problem they have is that they live, of course, they are funded. Mm -hmm. I remember when I would get ready to go to, to Geneva, to New York for the meeting, I would say to the NGOs, give me the questions I should ask hmm. and maybe explain to me why I should ask the question. Don't give me 200 pages. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, they, use, they need to show what they are doing. And when they prepare, when they have to do fundraising, they have to show their 200, 300 pages. Mm -hmm. But they're not very useful to the members of the committee. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that there needs to be some way in which NGOs know how, what documentation, what the, the committee members need. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was largely a failure. Mm -hmm. It was useful when we got them before us orally and could ask questions. But when we had to rely on documentation, it was never effective. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, and of course, they never, like these are things are prepared by lawyers, and we lawyers never prepare anything in advance. Mm -hmm. We wait until the last minute, and then we get it in. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the last minute is I have to leave from Washington to Geneva, mm -hmm. and I and I get two hundred or three hundred pages. Mm -hmm. So th that's sort of uh, one needs to think about how to do this, mm -hmm. and it might be useful to to have a meeting once uh, at the UN or, uh, with the representatives of each committee and some people who had served on those committees to see how they would deal with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that would help. Because again, I think the committees are useful. Uh, on the other hand, what I found on the Human Rights Committee in my time, we spent much too much time on the worst things mm -hmm. and too little time on, uh, you know, just ordinary violations of human rights mm -hmm. where one could help. But we focused on the death penalty. Uh, so, you know, some people would go to the country. We, we had very little time, a few weeks hearings. And if you focus only on two cases of death penalty, mm -hmm. you've blown a chance to. So they're, they're, they're really sort of practical problems mm. that could be dealt with if experienced people were brought in um, to strengthen them. But I think they're very useful. People don't realize how useful some of these institutions are that they've never heard of. 
It's an interesting observation of, you know, where you put your focus to get the maximum benefits. I'm reminded of a a statement Lewis Henkin once made about how international law mostly isn't for the saints, by which he meant the countries that are doing great things already, and not so much for the sinners, by which I think he meant the most extreme, but for those in between where you actually can influence exactly. their behavior and 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 in ways that Very true. are meaningful Very true. Yeah. yes and do some and get give some help that is mm-hmm. welcome even mm-hmm. because of course when some of these people go back home after appearing before the committee sometimes they have leverage mm. uh, right. to to bring about some changes right. and that sort of institutional collaboration needs to be improved Let me ask you a little bit about the Human Rights Council, a very different creature, unlike the treaty bodies, which are experts serving in their personal uh, capacity. Uh, The Human Rights Council, which had as its predecessor the Human Rights Commission, consists of governments. Um, As you know, it's been criticized, both the council and the commission before it criticized uh, for not fulfilling the function that it's designed for, which is also scrutinizing human rights uh, violations worldwide. Uh, Sometimes the governments on the council uh, are those that are viewed as uh, some of the prime violators of human rights, sometimes even leading uh, the council or the commission. Um, What do you think of the council as an institution? Well, I should preface it by saying I really don't know enough about it. Mm -hmm. I've been too busy Hmm. involved in some other things, but what I could, what my sense is, um, first of all, the council was created because of the belief that if it were created, it wouldn't be as politicized as the commission was. And that is forgetting that we're dealing with governments. Mm. The UN is not, you know, is a government institution. uh, So to assume that you're not going to politicize human rights in an institution that consists of more than almost 200 states is a fallacy. Mm-hmm. So uh, this optimism about what was going to be created, I, I, I never thought. I thought the commission uh, was doing a relatively good job over the years, mm-hmm. uh, as much as it, it could do. So I, I don't know. The other thing is that, that I thought the diffed assumption that members that are good countries can only sit on the commission is an invitation to getting bad ones on. Hmm. Because, of course, if you are sort of a, a country that violates human rights but isn't the worst necessarily, you would want to be on the council. Hmm. So you, it's you, a blessing. It's a blessing. Your, your, your yeah. look and the news, your newspapers mm-hmm. are going to be right. We were mm-hmm. elected to this commission mm-hmm. where which only good states are members. Mm-hmm. So it has all of the, it has a built-in problem already. But otherwise, in terms of its individual work, uh, I, I know there's been a focus. There tends to be a focus on, on certain countries individually. Um, but I, I really don't feel that I'm very competent mm-hmm. to, to deal with it. It is difficult, I would imagine, designing an institution consisting of actors that are themselves being scrutinized. Yeah. There's a tension right there. Uh, and there's also a tension that our international institutions are generally inclusive. We let states join the UN. We let them ratify these treaties. We don't pick and choose normally. Um, and so to, to go the path of only the good states get to, to play in this game uh, isn't quite in sync with, uh, no. with the way we approach international law generally. Well, let me ask you now about the International Court of Justice. Uh, uh, you did serve on the court from 2000 to 2010. Um, and uh, during that time, I think you were involved in about 38 substantive decisions of the court. I never knew that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And that ranges across procedural issues, right. counterclaims, and uh, preliminary measures of protection, uh, but also the merits uh, of cases as well. Um, any particular case that stands out for you as being one of the more interesting or one of the more important cases you were involved in? Well, I always tell the first one, a, a dispute between Qatar and Bahrain. Hmm. 
Um, this was your first case. This was uh, my first case. On the court. Yeah. Um, when we decided the case, the reason I like it is when we decided the case, both countries declared a national holiday on the assumption that they had won the case, mm. which I think <laughs> I, I'm told that the sec then Secretary General called the president of the court and congratulated him and said, please decide more cases like wow. this. Oh, well, when you're both parties happy with the outcome, you've <laughs> done more something right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think that was the major problem. Uh, mm -hmm. There were also some problems with documents that had been so it uh, it was my first case was was quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, I, I I found uh, th this is probably my law professor thing. I found almost every case interesting, mm -hmm. um, if, if for different reasons. Uh, some were more difficult. Uh, the, the the difficult cases for me were those that involved the United States, because there were I think three cases during my time. And uh, it forces you to be uh, sort of double careful about your involvement mm. and your participation because you feel that your colleagues are going to, whatever you say, your colleagues are going to say, well, he's saying that because he's from the US. Mm -hmm. um, Although you at times <laughs> decided along with the majority against the U.S. on some of those issues, so you didn't feel... And I didn't end up in Guantanamo. Uh, <laughs> did you feel uncomfortable, though? Was, it, was there a sense of, oh, I'm the American judge, I should be supporting the U.S. position on this? No, and I, you know what I found interesting is that, uh, and, and this was nice, it's easy in many ways to to be on the court and come from the United States or from some other countries because you don't feel you're going to be pressured. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I was told in one case that the foreign minister of a country was going around trying to influence the outcome and the judges, we were talking about it at lunch and I felt a little lonely because I felt, you know, they're coming to the U.S. on some other, but. The U.S. has never approached mm -hmm. me. Why not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, no, I, I didn't feel uh, at all, which, which is nice. Yeah. Besides, I think people, first of all, if anybody in the U.S. would have felt that they could uh, influence me, they would know that that wasn't going to, mm -hmm. to happen. Right. Uh, and it, it's, it's not really courageous to be able to say to the State Department, why don't you just not do that, mm -hmm. but it never happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was easy from, from that point of view. Well, the <laughs> objective should be for states to be nominating and electing judges who are independent. That's, totally. that's because they'll have credibility yes. in the positions they take. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was surprised that when I was elected, when I was nominated by the court, because I'd never served in the State Department, I'd never served in the Justice Department or the Defense Department, so, and, and in the past, if you look at U.S. judges on the ICJ, uh, they had some of those connections mm -hmm. and I had none. So mm -hmm. I wasn't even surprised I was elected. Mm -hmm. um, no, so I, the cases were interesting. There were some cases which, uh, you know, were harder. For example, the Wall case, mm. uh, which people thought, uh, my friends outside thought this was problems and so forth. Um, I, I thought, or rather, let me start again. Problem because this is a case concerning Israel's conduct in the West it, Bank and building a barrier and uh, your past connection with the Holocaust and so on, that, that, that yes, complicated thing? No, not that was the least of my complications. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what the problem to me was that this was a case which, for example, in a different context, the U.S. Supreme Court would not take on mm. because it didn't because there were not enough facts and there was not enough uh, analysis prov provided to the court to really decide it properly. Uh, I would have if I and I dissented in that case because I felt the court should not have decided the case at all; mm. should have rejected it. Um, but the court always says that it has the right to reject cases, almost every decision, uh, 
but it never does it. And there's a lot of authority for the court to reject it mm -hmm. because there are cases that are so inherently political mm -hmm. that for the court to get into it, when it doesn't really have all of the facts, weakens the court. Mm -hmm. That was basically my position. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, there, there, was, there was no problem. I, I should tell you that when, when uh, we had deliberated and I, my colleagues knew that I was going to dissent, uh, I announced at the court that that my wife and I are going to go a few days out of the Hague uh, because there was they were marching outside. The, the uh, Israelis had present, had introduced a, a bombed out bus, oh. uh, and there oh. were Palestinians and others marching out, making a lot of noise. And we lived in a house. My car was parked right outside and no protection whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So we th I thought you know, we should... Get out of town when the yes. judgment was being... And then a wonderful thing happened, well, not so wonderful. Um, as, as I was leaving, my Egyptian colleague said to me, Tom, there's no reason for you to go anyplace. And I said, why not? He says, well, Al Jazeera has reported that the American judge dissented. He was the only one who dissented. And then they showed the picture of the Dutch judge. <laughs> so... <laughs> He, I was safe, according to him. Well, I hope someone <laughs> mentioned it to him so that he knew. Well, uh, that, was the, that was the moral issue we had. Do we tell him? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was probably Judge Coyman's. The Judge Coyman's, yes. So let me ask you about a separate opinion that you did with uh, Judge Coyman's and also Judge Higgins. It was in the arrest warrant right. case, a uh, case involving the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, bringing an action against Belgium, uh, because of Belgium issuing an arrest warrant with respect to a DRC uh, foreign minister. Uh, the court in that case ended up focusing on the issue of immunity uh, and found that a sitting foreign minister was immune from uh, such uh, a, a prosecution uh, being launched by a, a foreign government, in that case, uh, Belgium. Uh, but in your separate opinion, you and the other two judges focused on the issue of jurisdiction. Could a country like Belgium exercise jurisdiction for serious crimes occurring in a different place um, and so on? What, what motivated you to write that opinion? Because it's gotten a lot of attention, and I, I think it'd be interesting to know a little bit of the, the backstory on that. Well, it's really, to some extent, universal jurisdiction issues, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, plays a lot in, uh, at least during the period, was it was more of an issue than it has become. Um, we, we felt that that issue needed to be touched, at least, uh, and that the court uh, should have addressed it, and that it was important uh, because that issue has never been really faced properly, mm -hmm. into, and that we should do it. Mm -hmm. uh, we regretted that we had to do it in an advisory, in an, uh, as a separate opinion, which doesn't have the same impact. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but that was basically uh, our concern. Uh, I, I must say, and, and also, the notion of universal jurisdiction is a real problem in international law. It can be terribly abused. Mm -hmm. uh, you can, uh, and that this can be very ex extremely useful mm -hmm. if handled right. So it would have been. It, it really was an opportunity for the court to get into it mm -hmm. and deal with this issue and the impact it would have uh, on countries, because it has built in an abuse possibility mm -hmm. that, that is quite strong. The court could have helped draw the lines exactly. on when it's okay when, and not okay. To, yes, or at least indicated yeah. that not, not every use of universal juris, uh, jurisdiction is great, mm -hmm. as was sort of the thing that was going around in the international human rights community. Mm -hmm. And I think you pointed out as well in the separate opinion that jurisdiction is logically a, a, a preceding issue to the issue exactly. of immunity. And yes. so you would think you would have to go through yeah. Uh, that analysis. Yeah, like falling into the house with a door rather than... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so we talked a little bit about the fact that you're an American on the court in some situations where the United States was a party in the case. Um, it's not 
the practice for judges to recuse themselves simply because they happen to have the nationality of uh, a party to the case. When is it you think judges should recuse themselves from contentious cases? Well, I am a great believer of recusal of national judges hmm. and abolishing the, the ad hoc judge. Hmm. Because, of course, they go together. Uh, because the impact of the ad hoc judge, which initially was, it was sort of the I, the guardian of making sure that the court was going to be dealing honestly with the problem so that the country that did not have a judge on the court would have some representation, mm -hmm. uh, but not real representation because they're supposed to be a judge. Well, it never works. Mm. I mean, it's rare. You, every so often you would get a truly uh, independent ad hoc judge, mm -hmm. but very often the ad hoc judge even if, it is a, if he or she is an honorable person, feels, well, I've been asked to be an ad hoc judge, so I have to take the interests of the country that put me there into account. And that already begins to color, to some extent, how you deal with the subject. Um, also, I, I think if you're an honest person or a person with integrity, uh, sitting on a case involving your own country presents moral issues in terms of how you decide what your obligation is. Uh, and I would have been just as happy not to sit on a case involving the mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. um, simply because, and, and I would, when, today I think, well, backtrack. When the court was created, uh, they want, states wanted to make sure that there was, that both sides, both states who were parties would have some access to the court. Mm -hmm. I think that's no longer necessary mm -hmm. today uh, because I think the international court is considered, you either like it, you trust it, or you don't trust it. It's not going to depend about who's going to sit mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But you have, one has much more freedom as a judge when you're not sitting on your own court, even though you're not afraid what's going to happen to you. Or, but it's just, it's always in the back of your mind that you're a national of a country that is before you now. And it's unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So I, I would, uh, I, I think... favor maybe amending the statute and the rules of the court so that a judge of the nationality of a party recuses himself and no ad no hoc, ad hoc judges judge. Added. I think yeah. that, that would be, especially mm -hmm. for a court like the ICJ, which today has been so long in existence that countries should know that it makes no difference uh, whether you have an ad hoc judge on there or not. It's not going to make any mm -hmm. big difference. So. Any other changes or reforms that you would like to see at the court based on your experience there? Um, it's, it's, of course, always trying to improve its yes. working methods in certain ways. But anything that strikes you as uh, problematic that you would like to see? Well, the one problem that has always been there is how slow the court is. Um, and that is, in a sense, a function of the fact that states most of the time want all the judges to sit on their case. Mm. And that is due, and consequently, even though there is a chance for states to have a chamber, a smaller group, um, most legal advisors don't like a chamber because if they lose the case, for example, their country is going to say, why did you choose these three judges? We should have had the court, the whole court. Mm -hmm. So uh, th there is a, uh, that's, uh, as a result, the entire court sits on one case. The things have to be translated and, the and you have a back backlog of three, four cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a small operation that is caused by the fact. So the question is, how do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. uh, some people have suggested doing only a small, a small chambers or breaking the court up. Mm -hmm. uh, then you've got a problem because then uh, who decides to which part of the th thing the court is going to go? Mm -hmm. that, that's a problem. If you expand it, you have this and have two 
chambers like the German Constitutional Court, you've got a, the same problem. Mm -hmm. Which case is this thing going to go to? Um, so I don't know. I, yeah. I think if the court had many more resources, the translation could be more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe more law clerks would have. When I came, we, we didn't have any court finance law clerks. Uh, that's different now. But, so all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't see. Uh, uh, also, well, let me stop here. Yeah, I mean, I suppose part of that delay that occurs uh, in all fairness is, is attributable to the parties themselves. Of course. Who take a lot of time to do multiple rounds of pleadings and sometimes prefer not to move too quickly. But uh, it does seem to be the case that there's yeah. also issues with the court. Yeah, it would be so. nice if you could say, when we, because on the court there are also too many former diplomats hmm. who, do, who, who object if you say, if you were planning to tell the country, we want this, your brief in four weeks. Mm -hmm. Whereas we academics are always much free. <laughs> Get it done. <laughs> I suppose in fairness to the court, uh, some of that delay that occurs is attributable to the parties themselves saying uh, we need more time to file pleadings and uh, in fact we're not anxious to get this done so please hold hold back but of course some of it is the court itself yeah no i i think you're right it has a lot to do uh, it's one of the things that that slows the, the court down um it's not the only thing yeah because you have the translation problem and all of those things uh, come into play right uh, also of course another problem uh, there is this, the ICJ bar, that is to say, the, the a limited number of lawyers who appear before the ICJ and every country wants to hire them. Mm -hmm. So their schedule mm. sometimes affects also who, you know, how slow or how fast the, the court works. Mm -hmm. um, Would you like to see a broader bar than what currently exists? Do you think it's a problem having a dozen or or so uh, people that are habitually appearing before the court, or is it a good thing because there's a, a sort of institutional knowledge there that uh, helps guide the court in its work? No, I, first of all, it's wonderful to have some of the people who've been appearing appear because they know their staff, uh, they're very good, and you know that uh, when they say something, you can rely on it that they've studied the subject. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good. Uh, on the other hand, it would be nice to have more lawyers from governments, different governments, uh, be heard mm -hmm. and begin to have a sort of an interest uh, in the court itself, mm -hmm. uh, sort of have a sense of belonging, mm -hmm. that that's an institution to, to which you can go, and that would be useful. Mm -hmm. And every so often you get, you get, you're surprised that somebody you've never heard of appears before you and is truly impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there they're are people there. around. Yeah, yeah, they're out there. Um, uh, that, that is, uh, and I think uh, every bar has its has its geniuses. We have it in the Supreme Court. Certain people appear all the time. Uh, but would be, you know, the world needs people who know how these institutions mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So it, no harm would be done. Um, but uh, also, uh, it's very hard for the judges to tell governments how fast they should submit the instrument. It wasn't hard for people like me or for those of us who were known as the academic mafia on the court, because we, we were not on any, on any countries that never worked for a country. Mm -hmm. So we felt there's nothing wrong. We can tell it when we were on a domestic court, we tell them, get, get this in, yeah. tell the government to get mm -hmm. it in. Uh, but but they went, it was interesting that the former diplomats on the court mm -hmm. were very reluctant mm -hmm. and didn't think it was a good idea to. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's <laughs> right. Let me ask you a few um, broad questions before we finish off. I the thought that's all we were doing. Interview. Well, <laughs> these have been a bit targeted on particular institutions and so on. And I wanted to step back and reflect a little bit more on the system of international law as a whole. 
Um, and maybe start with uh, a question about the United States. Uh, obviously, you came to the U.S., you're an American. Uh, the United States is a very large country, a very powerful country in many respects, diplomatically, uh, economically, militarily. Um, the U.S. was a major player in building up, I think, international law in that post-World War II period, uh, a sort of founder of some of the key institutional structures and supporter and so on. Um, but it has, at least in recent years, not joined certain key treaties. We talked a little bit about that. Um, Law of the Sea Convention, Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, um, hasn't joined the uh, Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Um, and so my question is, what role do you think the U.S. Uh, is playing today in relation to this field of international law and institutions? What role should it play in the years to come? Well, I, I've always felt very bad as an American citizen uh, that, that the U.S. would not ratify certain human rights instruments. Mm -hmm. Uh, initially, one could understand it because we had de jure racial discrimination in the South, and it was would have been very difficult to get it through the Congress because you had uh, senators and Congress people from those those countries, and would have been difficult. But that's not the problem anymore. Um, it, it's it's bad because it the U.S. could do so much more. We have. We have great experience in human rights, in the domestic human rights in this country. Uh, some of our people could make great contributions mm -hmm. in those courts, in those institutions. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're missing out. Mm -hmm. um, and it also weakens our policy. It's very difficult to talk big about human rights when you're yourself staying away from mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. it's good for others to be told what to do, but not for you. Mm -hmm. uh, so the U.S. U.S. maneuverability in the international field is is sort of self-restricted by not adhering to some of these institutions. Uh, for example, the International Criminal Court. Why isn't the U.S. there? I mean, this is something the U.S. has historically supported this idea. Mm -hmm. um, so. I, I think it's not only that it's useful in the world if the U.S. were there, but the U.S. itself is uh, handcuffing itself mm -hmm. uh, in not serving on these bodies. Uh, and not only in the sense that it's not contributing there, but it's, not being, it, it's being treated often as, as being uh, not honest in, uh, in advocating human rights for others and not being involved. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've we've dealt with this issue uh, carefully. Mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a wager with some friends that the U.S. will ratify the Rome Statute in about 15 years. Hmm. Because it's, imagine it took 25 years, I think, for the U.S. to ratify the Genocide Convention. Yeah. Oh, and you know, the covenants on civil and political, oh, 10 years or 12 years before the U.S. ratified. Eventually we, get around to mm -hmm. it. In the meantime, we have missed an opportunity to contribute to the development of these institutions uh, and bringing, you know, a, a sort of experience that we have in courts and other things. Right. So I, I think it's a mistake for the U.S. and to some extent the, the world suffers a little bit, but more, more hurting the U.S. more than I Itself, think the other. Maybe not appreciating yeah. the benefits that exactly. come from building up those institutions. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me leave the U.S. aside now and ask you more broadly about these institutions that we have, because we've talked about several of them, uh, and you're in a bit of a unique position because I think you may be the only person who served on the Human Rights Committee, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the International Court of Justice. So you have a unique perspective uh, here. Um, can you peer into the future and talk a little bit about whether these are the right kinds of institutions to structure ourselves? There seems to be a bit of 
serendipity, the way they've popped up. And the question, I guess, then is, is this good? Do we need to rethink things? Do we need a, another post-World War II period of reinventing ourselves? Or do, are, you, are you feeling good about the, the path we are embarked on? I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Uh, it, it's too big a question in, in the sense that uh, I, I don't think one will be able to restructure things sufficiently, or even if one were able to, that one would come up with a better system. Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of the small reforms that over the years can be done that will strengthen in certain institutions are probably going to be the only thing we're going to end up with that may have some some advantages. Mm -hmm. But I don't see any great uh, changes. Uh, for example, on the Inter-American Court, we learned a great deal from the practice of the European Court of Human Rights. If we had more of these institutions and collaborations and things, uh, one, one could learn from each other and restructure things and mm -hmm. uh, create a case law that was sort of universal human rights case law that comes from different institutions, which is uh, you know, culturally, it could be extremely useful. Mm -hmm. But if you try to sort of force that, it's not going to, to work. There's too much suspicions because immediately countries say, well, what do they really want to achieve? Mm -hmm. Well, let me zero in on just one type of institution, courts, because you have served on different courts. Um, would it be fair to say that... Um, your approach to international law over the course of your career uh, contains a belief in the centrality of courts for any system of international law. Are they an inescapable element in order to make the law work, whether on a global, regional, or sub-regional basis? I, definitely. Hmm. Um, if nothing else, we need courts because lawyers need courts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and lawyers often shape policies, national policies. Right. Lawyers need them in order to have decisions. In order to have decisions. Definitively. Definitively. Yeah. Lawyers want outcomes, and they want outcomes that come from institutions that have a certain legitimacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we really need to, to work on. Mm -hmm. Uh, to what extent are these institutions see, seen as being legitimate, uh, honest, legitimate? Um, that's very important to lawyers. And lawyers really, in each country, the legal advisors' offices exercise a tremendous amount of power and, mm -hmm. and influence. And if these people have a certain uh, faith in these institutions, uh, the, the institution can create things and achieve things. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I, I think courts are important. I, I think one has to also see, understand the limits of what courts can do. For example, Truth Commission have a great, uh, are very useful in doing, a, a, in describing things in a large way, historically. Uh, for example, what led to Hitler? A court cannot decide that. It would, I mean, you can. A court is too individual, outcome-oriented. Mm -hmm. But you need some institutions that legitimate institutions that can understand domestic developments that lead to certain terrible consequences, and that's where it, a foreign uh, truth commission or some other such entity uh, can have a can provide some useful uh, information. Mm -hmm. uh, but a truth commission without a court is also not enough. You need both. Mm -hmm. Because the court can focus on individual's responsibility, whereas the truth commission is a sort of... A, 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 is much, more, much larger, much more historical, sociological, uh, which is also needed. Mm -hmm. And the expert treaty bodies, yet another tool yes. oh, in the yeah. toolkit for addressing yeah. yes. these issues. Uh, One thing. And also, you know what is so interesting? You mentioned before the 10 committees. 
the members of those 10 committees are a built-in support group mm. for the institutions, mm. whether they like what this, and that's important. Mm -hmm. And these are people that are influential in their own countries. Mm -hmm. So you can, they can't just come back and say, don't pay any attention to this institution if you're sitting on it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, there, there are lots of sort of consequences that flow from people sitting there and representing governments and trying to shape some uh, results. One way to think about these different tools, I think, is uh, that they are um, detracting from the sovereignty of states, yeah. right? That we have a system of sovereign states, they all are able to control their own territory and so on. And this field of international law with these kinds of institutions are each nibbling away at it. So let me ask you this rather broad question. How do you think the, the concept of sovereignty has changed since you embarked many years ago on your path in the, the field of international law? Is it, is it different today, the way that, that, that states and non-state actors think about what sovereignty is? Well, you know what, what is so interesting is that even some of us don't think, uh, see sovereignty as sort of being outside. Mm. Uh, every treaty between two states diminishing sovereignty between them. It's a narrowing mm -hmm. with, every, with every treaty uh, that, that, is, uh, that a state enters into on a subject of mutual interest, you've already limited your sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So we, we lived, it used to be that common law or customary international law was the maker of international. More and more it's treaties right. today. Right. And that means that more and more there are lim increasingly limits on sovereignty self-imposed by countries. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's transforming it and it's regulating it more than, than before. Right. Um, but I don't think we realize, on the other hand, it's always wonderful to watch the reaction of a state saying you're intervening in our sovereignty. Most people, most states, most diplomats, are, you, you say, what's this, what's this excuse uh, again? Mm -hmm. It's not taken seriously anymore mm -hmm. uh, as it was, say, 40, 50, 60, or 100 right. years ago when it was uh, really meaningful. Today it is seen as an excuse for not complying with your treaty obligations mm -hmm. or something. But it's dispensed with fairly quickly as a, a yes. plausible rationale. Yes. Even my countries because... who yesterday said our sovereignty. Right, right. Yeah, I think another interesting way of approaching the sovereignty issue is that states, when they join those treaties, are exercising their sovereignty because it benefits them. Very much, right? very true. It's yes. just it's a different way in which sovereignty yes. manifests itself. Okay, final question. Um, the trouble is with the question. The more you ask, the more <laughs> I know that I don't know anything. Well, you know an awful lot, and you've been through a lot. And uh, I think uh, this interview is wonderful because it's a way of sharing your thoughts with others. Uh, this again is a kind of a big question. Um, right now it's 2017. Uh, there's some doubts about the international law and institutional system that we have. Um, will entities like the European Union endure? Will the North Atlantic Treaty Organization endure? Um, will free trade continue to be a hallmark of this post-World War II era, um, are we willing to uphold human rights? I'm thinking now about uh, flows of refugees and borders going up that didn't previously exist. Are you optimistic about where we're headed in the future with respect to international law and international institutions? I have a short answer to it. If I were pessimistic, it would destroy everything I've worked on mm -hmm. uh, and believed in. And I, I think, I, I come back to something we started with, I think. Uh, it, whatever we're doing in these fields, first of all, they're not perfect. 
They will never be perfect. But they take us one little step forward. Professor Sohn used to say, one brick on the wall. You'll mm -hmm. never just build the wall in one mm -hmm. swoop. And that's what's happening. It's not perfect. It never will be perfect. Uh, but we're making some progress in mm -hmm. certain places, certain parts, and then move forward. Uh, if one attempts to be perfect, one is going to destroy the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yes, very much makes a lot of sense yeah. to say yeah. that. Yes, so I, I uh, we, we, it will endure because we haven't got anything better. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we need to is, and this is what's so interesting. I think we need to start uh, education younger and younger with children. I'm, I must say. I've been tremendously impressed with what has happened in Germany. Uh, would you think that Germany was a killer nation during Hitler's period? That's just, it doesn't need any explanation. That's what it was. And today it has become this constitutional democracy that is truly outstanding. How? Education. Mm -hmm. All kinds of, you know, sometimes a lot of luck and mm -hmm. economic advantage. So we need to start working on bringing international law into the kindergarten mm -hmm. <laughs> in mm -hmm. some way to educate kids when they're little, when they are most receptive and have education for democracy, for human rights, for international law, all over our, our institutions. Um, that works. And to mm -hmm. me, the effect with Germany is, is unbelievable when you think. If that collapses, if Germany now re should suddenly revert to fascism again, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to be around mm -hmm. uh, when that happens. If it, I don't think it will happen. But the education is something we need to focus mm -hmm. much more. And I think we international lawyers have an obligation to focus on education to uh, to under, uh, to lay the foundation for our system mm -hmm. so that anybody who graduates from a certain school will say, ah, international law is important. Mm -hmm. We haven't really done that. Yeah. Uh, but, but that's because it is education in the long term that is going to determine whether we have wars or peace or whether people live, have a, the economy is good for people. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I hope we focus more not on our sophisticated education, but it mm -hmm. should start low. Mm -hmm. And keep reminding ourselves that we can change the world. Yes, basically. it is. Yeah. I, I think Germany is an ex I wish people would study more what's happened. Why is it, was it possible mm -hmm. in Germany? Mm -hmm. Judge, thank you so much for this interview. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.